Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a new podcast of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. I am Jim Grant, and uh, with me today, as usual, is Eric Whitehead, who's uh, on, the, on the controls. He is our engineer, and, uh, and the great Evan Lorenz, deputy editor of Grant's, is also on the scene. I think in the background, not so far, is Philip Grant, the associate publisher of Grant's and the author of the Almost Daily Grant's. Uh, that leaves uh, Saturday and Sunday most weeks for, for tight time. But, uh, uh, hey, Evan, um, I wanted to begin by, first of all, by acknowledging our kind sponsor, uh, Pitney Bowes, and secondly, to observe that this episode is also sponsored in the way of Sesame Street by the word somewhat. We'll get around to that in a second. Uh, but uh, we have a, a quality of earnings discussion, do we not? That we do. Whirlpool, um, the grants Bent Noir from uh, Ben Harbor reported earnings today uh, as we we're recording right now. The company reported a miss. Uh, its adjusted EPS came in at $3.35, and the street was expecting $3.53. However, if you peel down below the first couple sentences in the press release, uh, gap earnings actually came in at $2.52, well below uh, the non-gap numbers. And in fact, over the last year, Whirlpool's earned $9.99 in gap earnings, the audited kind that the, you know, the auditors approve of. Uh, versus $13.84 in the, in the non-GAAP variety. The quality of Whirlpool's earnings seems to deteriorate as time goes on. Just to give an example, they backed out $59 million in restructuring charges in the most recent quarter versus $40 million in the, the same period a year ago. The restructuring charges are all related to an acquisition Whirlpool made in the fourth quarter of 2014. So this acquisition that's now two and a half years uh, into corporate history is accruing larger and larger restructuring charges as times goes on. Also, the company has been guiding the street for a full year tax rate of 20%, when in fact, uh, in this quarter, they came out with a 15% tax rate, well below the uh, statutory U.S. tax rate of 39%. You would expect the company to pull out all stops. In June, they announced that the uh, longtime CEO, Jeff Fedig, was going to retire on October uh, 1st. So this was his last quarter as uh, the, the CEO of the company. With that said, again, they still had a material miss, and this is not something that's really new with Whirlpool. If you look at the last four quarters, the company has missed adjusted EPS guidance and uh, consensus every single quarter for the last four quarters. Well, how, how does the market react to this? The stock is, I mean, we, we are bearish on it, but um, I can't help observe the stock is not paying attention to what we wanted to do. The stock is down 7% today, but it's approximately around the same place that we published on it on February. Uh, and again, because the gap between um, audited numbers and adjusted numbers is so wide, the valuation on it is, is either very cheap or very expensive, depending on your perspective. So based off of the adjusted numbers that the street believes in and that if you go to Bloomberg, you'll see uh, when you pull up the description page, the stock's trading at 12.8 times earnings, which compared to a, a overall stock market trading at 20 times seems relatively cheap. But then if you actually look at the real numbers, the, the, the numbers that auditors approve of, the stock's trading at 17.7 times, which seems expensive for a company that's missing earnings every single quarter, that has low quality of earnings, and other problems that we've identified in our, in our piece in February. Your Whirlpool is not exactly unique in this regard, no? No, it, it seems like uh, one, one of the hallmarks of our current bull market is, as time goes on, the adjustments to earnings and the uh, items that management finds one time increase for a whole range of companies. But the thing is, it's almost invisible to most um, you know, people looking at the market because, again, the Bloomberg terminal by default shows you adjusted earnings, and they don't even tell you that they're adjusted earnings. So when you pull up any single company, whether that's Kraft Heinz, uh, Whirlpool, uh, Restaurant Brands International, you'll see 
a number that looks, you know, somewhat pleasing, maybe a little bit expensive. But then when you start digging into the financials, you'll find that the uh, earnings, uh, the, the valuation is actually much more expensive on, uh, you know, gap numbers. You know, and the index makers uh, pick up where the uh, chief financial officers leave off. Uh, QQQ Trust Series is a power shares exchange traded fund that. Um, uh, tracks the uh, NASDAQ 100, an index of the 100 biggest NASDAQ-listed non-financial companies. Uh, QQQ's great star performance performers of the uh, of the bull market has a price range ratio, according to uh, to the authorities, to the power shares people, of 22 times or thereabouts, 22 times. And you scratch your head. Steve Bregman has helped us scratch. He, in fact, uh, created the itch that made us scratch. He's a very curious fellow and a very fine analyst. But uh, you wouldn't expect this, the top five index constituents being Apple and Alphabet and Microsoft and Amazon and Facebook. They constitute uh, 43 or so percent of the index market value when they trade these stocks do at a weighted average multiple of about 57 times. So you wonder how and the how the heck can the QQQ claim a multiple less than half the grand total of so large a constituent sample? Well, well, it can, and here's how it does. In the first place, again, thank you, Steve Brinkman. The, uh, the QQQ price earnings ratio calculation excludes the results of loss-making companies. Now that is not unique to. Uh, this QQQ exchange-traded fund, the NASDAQ Biotech Index, for example, does the same. But the, the real source of the prestidigitation, which, Evan, that uh, is a kind of a magic trick, the source of this magic is the calculation method of the price earnings ratio. And, and you know, you could think of all manner of ways of doing this. You could, you could add up the PEs that different companies and divide them by the number of companies. You could add up their earnings and then uh, take their average price and do it that way. You could, but here's the way that the uh, power shares people do it. They use the weighted harmonic mean. And uh, a footnote on the Invesco website uh, explains it this way. Uh, quote, a method of calculation using an average value that lessens the impact of large outliers and increases the impact of small ones. Close quote. Well, we fall back, as we so often do, to that final authority, Wikipedia, which furnishes a more granular, if not more immediately clarifying description as follows, quote, the harmonic mean can be expressed as the reciprocal of the arithmetic mean of the reciprocals of the given set of observations. What? Well, okay, so let's, let's work through this slowly. Everyone get out his or her pencil, please. Uh, this is going to take a little bit of work. Now, not much. Now, we're going to take the hypothetical portfolio of four equal-weighted stocks. And let's say they're valued at 10 times, 20 times, 30 times, and 300 times earnings. So you divide the sum of those four PEs, and you divide by four, and the answer is 90. 90. So now you do the first step uh, uh, for the weighted harmonic mean. We call the reciprocal is one divided by the quantity. So sum the reciprocal of the prop. What you do is take the reciprocal of those, and you add them up, and you get uh, 0.1867. You divide by 4 to find the average. Next, you take the reciprocal of this product, or 1 divided by 0.0466. That comes to 21.4. Thus, a basket of stocks that has an equal weighted average earnings multiple of 90 times becomes a weighted harmonic mean multiple of 21.4 times. Got that, Evan? It sounds perfectly preposterous. This is a, I want to say hello to my friend Jack Bogle. This is a pure index investment approach, which he pioneered, John C. Bogle approached, 
invented the, he's the founder, of course, of Vanguard Group, is to invest in the stock market, the whole stock market, and nothing but the stock market, as mimicked by the S&P 500. And you can do this for pennies in the dollar. Start young, don't stop, and you may have the pleasure of dying rich, too. Okay, that's, that's one way of doing it. That's the Bogle way. The ETF approach, as typified by the $55 billion QQQ, is a little bit different. And that is invest in a particular segment of the stock market and necessarily concentrate it in probably hot segment, cleverly time your entrance and exit, and repeat for as long as your capital holds out. That's the ETF approach. Uh, this episode of uh, the Grants Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Pitney Bowes, the makers of SendPro. Now, did you know that uh, compared to uh, brandxstamps.com, SendPro has three times, yes, three times the features at one-third the price. Uh, you can print stamps at your computer and Call the Internet of the Stamps or, you know, wherever. If you want to wait in line with the post office, Pitney Bowes has nothing to stop you. But with the SendPro, uh, you can print paid shipping labels for the U.S. Postal Service, UPS, and more. You can track your shipments from the same easy-to-use interface. And you can save money. Pitney Bowes has negotiated special rates for SendPro users with savings start at, uh, starting at $0.03 cents per stamp. Now, uh, you want to learn more as well you might. Uh, visit uh, pb, as in pitneybows.com, slash grantspod to find out about an introductory offer that features 90 free days of SendPro, along with what the Pitney Bowes people uh, persist in calling a free 10-pound scale, but which we at Grants have weighed out to be what fell. Uh, 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 1.6 pounds. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's different from, different from 10, yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, as I, I think I, I, I recall distinctly uh, saying in a previous podcast that we at Grants are not uh, shills. We are journalists. We are empiricists. And we have uh, tried out um, this technology for ourselves. Eric Whitehead, who is, uh, you know, is uh, our technologist in-house, he's in charge of everything that, uh, from putting, uh, I don't know, from changing the paper in the computer and the printer file drawer. I mean, I can't do that. He does it. He does much more complex things than that. But I told Eric, please uh, try out the SendPro. We're not going to talk about this product unless we can vouch for it. So he did. He did. And while we don't do much mailing with a post office, uh, uh, he says, but what if, if we did, because he tried it, what was really nice about the platform is that everything is actually all in one place. You don't need to go to various websites, print labels for UPS, FedEx, and so forth. And here's a direct quote, quote from Eric Whitehead, who's giving this testimony without anything in the way of emolument, pay, or a bribe. Quote, Eric Whitehead, all your shipping needs are consolidated on one easy-to-use website, period, close quote. Now, so SendPro, Pitney Bowes, and Tom Grant sent you. Indexation, Evan, is, is very, very big. And ETFation, that's the word, right, is uh, just as big or bigger. And it, uh, I don't know, it's, it's kind of the way we roll today, right? Yeah. We did ask the good folks at uh, Invesco PowerShares why they use the, uh, the weighted harmonic mean and, you know, whether it's an accurate measurement for the, for the index. Could you give us a dramatic meeting? Uh, I'll try to make this dramatic. Invesco uses methods to calculate the P-E ratio that we believe are best reflective of that P-E ratio, which includes using industry standard methods such as the weighted harmonic average. There are many different methods for calculating a P-E ratio, all of which have pros and cons, but the weighted harmonic average is a calculation that is standard across the industry. Yeah, yeah, good. Very 
very nice, very well read, and uh, I would say from the point of view of uh, of Invesco, uh, very artfully crafted. Well, this may be the bull market standard, but uh, I'm just going to speculate, and this, of course, is just guesswork, Evan. I'm going to speculate that after the stock market congressional hearings of the year 2000, what do you say, 2018? Yeah, 2018, that, uh, uh, that we're going to be using the... Uh, the simple arithmetic average, and then we're going to multiply that by three just to scare off the retail. That's, that'll be a federal law. It'll be the new. Uh, it'll be the Lorenz rule. Never mind the Volcker rule. We're going to Lorenz rule to import honesty into the calculation of um, ETF price earnings ratio. So there's a little prophecy for you. Now, let me see. Oh yes, Evan, I I I, uh, I am remiss because I indicated above, uh, that is to say at the top of the podcast, that this particular segment is sponsored not only by Pitney Bowes, our friends at Pitney Bowes, but also by the word somewhat. Now, this might seem a little bit uh, mystifying, but uh, bear with me. Uh, the word somewhat was key to um, a lot of financial inside baseball chatter the other day. The Federal Reserve came out as is its want. The FOMC came out uh, after its meeting went um, just, uh, I don't know, recently, right? Yeah, yesterday. That's pretty recent. And said uh, something to the effect that uh, overall inflation and the measure excluding food and energy prices have declined and are running below 2%. That was a quote. Uh, running below 2%. And uh, what the criminologists following the Federal Reserve and the FOMC particularly noticed was that the month before, the month before, that same language ran as follows. It said running somewhat below 2%. Somewhat. Now, I don't know how many billions of dollars were riding on the presence of that modifying word somewhat, but we have come to a place in our monetary history Evan and Phil and Eric, we're coming to a place in the monetary history in which that weasel word is the occasion for serious people betting other people's savings on, on what? I mean, let us pause and reflect that the complexities and difficulties of calculating price index are considerable. The prices that these indices contain are sampled. There's sampling errors. There's there are, um, more or less uh, arbitrary uh, uh, choices made by the samplers about what constitutes the, the near substitute of that particular product to be sampled, not on the shelf. Uh, there is the seasonal adjustment. There is the adjustment for changes in quality, the so-called uh, hedonic adjustment. And I don't mean to suggest there's bad faith on the part of the index gatherers. Quite the contrary. Harrison Woodill of our staff went out and shadowed one a couple of months ago and was you know, duly impressed by the diligence of, the, of this uh, price taker, the price surveyor. Uh, but for Pete's sake, I mean, uh, the, plus, I mean the, the, the margin for error has to be substantial in these indices. And by the way, you never read about a plus or a minus reading on the so-called core PCE or the, or the headline CPI, right? They don't say it's within one-half of 1% 1 margin of error as they do on political polls, having been shamed, the pollsters, into saying that. But the, what they say is that you know, the core PCE is whatever it is, 
four, and I, I, I have seen this, perhaps you have two, Evan, after three decimal places. Three! One beyond the decimal point to me is a, is a kind of a conceit. Uh, two is, uh, is pushing things. Three is, is, is unacceptable. It's like a fund of fund of funds. Well, anyway, I'm almost done with my rant, but um, I am, I am, the, only, I, I, the only thing I think I can definitely claim, and, and even this is a speculation, the only thing I, I believe I can definitely claim by way of constructive contribution to the monetary discourse of this country is the, is, is the absence from these press releases of the phrase foreseeable future. When Alan Greenspan was chairman of the Fed uh, many years ago, Grants got on the Fed's case about this phrase, foreseeable future. What is foreseeable by them, by us, by anybody? What, two weeks? Oh, no. Is it going to rain tomorrow? That's not foreseeable. Your phone's going to tell you it's going to rain, but the phone is going to change its mind, I bet you. I think the Fed stop plots, which predict um, inflation, go out two or three years of the future. Yeah, right, that one. So the five-year, five-year imputed forward inflation forecast uh, derived from the uh, derivatives markets. That one's a good one, too. Anyway, Evan, uh, help me get off this particular one track. What else we got today? Well, there's currencies not controlled by central banks. Well, you're talking about gold, are you not? No, I'm I'm talking about the uh, electronic emissions of uh, uh, initial coin offerings. Well, I mean, they they are, uh, many people believe them to be the new gold. I'm sounding scornful. It's not scorn. It's envy. Envy of the recent price action. But I'm not, I must say, I do not believe that uh, uh, these coins are, uh, by the way, there are about 825 of them, or were. They breed like rabbits. But I am not, uh, I just, I don't believe that it's a monetary phenomenon. I believe that it's a speculative phenomenon. I believe that um, these coins, whatever purpose they serve, and I have no idea really what blockchain is about, nor do I have a clear notion of how it will be. Uh, used in the future, but say the blockchain is in fact the miracle technology it's meant to be. I, I don't see uh, that these coins are are stores of value. In fact, Evan, you observed something this morning in the headlines that would seem to say uh, that some of the insiders in the crypto world doubt that uh, uh, these things are stores of value, at least not as stored as their stores of value either. Yeah, so th- this comes from Quartz. Uh, the, the website is qz.com. The headline is, after a series of hacks, cryptocurrency issuers may turn to old-fashioned bank vaults for security. The, the people making cryptocurrencies uh, don't seem to really trust them. Hmm. Yeah, well, they're not going to hack my gold. They, they, may, they, may, they may depreciate it in price, and they, uh, they certainly have over the past few years, but... Uh, at least I'm, I'm safe from hacking. Evan, Eric, Phil, thank you for being a part of this particular production. And ladies and gentlemen, I thank you for listening. This is Jim Grant on behalf of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. We will talk to you next week. 